Do you, do you guys want to see something cool? I want to show you something cool. It's a video. It's been, it's been watched over 9 million times. It was produced by a guy by the name of 8 Booth. It's a cool name. He's a high-flying daredevil that would trespass on hotel property. He would go on a million-dollar real estate to jump off of cliffs into the Pacific Ocean. And he'd do these daring jumps wearing his signature handkerchief and then a go camera. And then he'd put it on YouTube and he'd get millions of hits. Watch how cool this guy is. Watch this. that cool? <laughs> Joe, isn't that cool? See, Joe, I knew you'd like that. I, I show this video because uh, I went to visit my sister this past summer in uh, Laguna Beach, California, and he lives two houses down from them. And um, I was talking to my nephew, Mitch. Mitch went to school with him, and I was asking Mitch about him. And Mitch said his name's Anthony Armour. He's extremely rich, and he's Bored with life, is what Mitch said. And because he's bored with life, he's always looking for the next big thrill. He was kicked out of school many times for truancy and drugs. And Mitch, uh, when I ask Mitch about him, Mitch gives you that furrowed brow. And I said, isn't he cool? And he says, no. No. If you ask anybody at school that goes to school with him, he's really not cool. In an article titled, titled, This is Why I Jump, Anthony wrote, You can keep me off a rock saying that it's private property. What the H is that? The earth is ours and I'm taking it back. I don't feel I'm giving anything to anyone but myself. I've gone unnoticed for so long, sacrificing life and limb. I could care less what people think of me. I'm a rebel force leader, not a pop fame freak. My family hates it. They don't speak of it. They see me on the news. Nobody really even talks to me. You can kind of, like when you read the article, there's a snark to him. Last year, he made another jump. He jumped off the Pacific Edge Hotel in Laguna Beach, jumping into their small outdoor pool. He missed. Before entering the pool, after jumping six stories down, both of his feet smashed into the concrete, shattering all the bones in his ankles and heels. He had to pull himself out of the pool by his arms because he couldn't walk. Here's a picture of him right here in the hospital. Not only was he arrested for trespassing, 
and reckless behavior, but his hospital bill was sort of steep. A quarter of a million dollars. To help pay the bill, he opened up a GoFundMe page and he wrote, Pool drop eight destroyed me, man. Both feet shattered as well as my heels. Help me. Just seeking a little support to keep doing what I'm doing or else I'll be working the rest of my life to pay this off. Asking a small favor from me, a donation of any kind, would be phenomenal. One person who followed all of his YouTube videos wrote to him on his Help Me account, not trying to be cruel or anything, you're a pretty rad dude, but you did this to yourself, man. Have a good recovery. No donation offered. Here's the moral. Sometimes it's really not cool to be cool. Not only that, sometimes it's straight up deadly to be cool. And today we're going to talk about that. And the title of this message is called Not Cool. Because there's some things in this world that are not cool. If you could open up to 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at 1 to 9. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 9. Peter is writing to a group of people that are scattered throughout uh, like Rome, Asia. And there were, I would say Christianity was starting to take hold and there were false prophets and false teachers that would come teaching, but they were false. They made a lot of money off of the new believers. And so he's writing, warning people about that. He begins in verse 1 by saying, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be, he's saying there will be, false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed... They will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Let's stop there. So he's going to talk about false prophets, what they're like, and what uh, is their reward. And it's not pretty. In other words, we might think they're cool, but they're not. When it comes to religion and church life in America, there is what I would say a cool new movement in our culture. I call it the cool new thing. It's been like this, I'd say, specifically for the last about 20 years. The cool thing is to be considered now a heretic. It's cool to be a heretic. People like to be known as cool when they experiment with new theology, new ideas, especially, you know, daring the margins of what the church has always taught. The heretic is the man who snubs his or her nose at 2,000 years of orthodoxy and traditional belief. The heretic is the one who reimagines God of their own making. Ten years ago, I picked up this book in the uh, book, Christian bookstore. It looked really cool. Here's the title of it, A Heretic's Guide to Eternity. Challenging the idea that being a heretic is no longer something to fear. It's now something to embrace. It's kind of cool to question doctrine. A person who was really influenced by this train of thought and really liked 
this writer, the writer Spencer Burke, who had a lot of influence on this guy, is, is a man I mention every once in a while because I think he's a perfect example in our time of what heresy looks like, and that is Grand Rapids' own heretic himself, Rob Bell. A month and a half ago, he came out with a movie called Heretic. So I'm not calling him that. He's adopting that name. Last month, this documentary in its trailer said with his signature mischievous smile saying, somewhere along the way, the Jesus movement got hijacked. The religions have failed. We are going through a revolution. So these great traditions, they have to be expanded and reimagined. The best expression, I think, of modern-day heresies from this book. Listen to this quote. Spencer Burke writes, Everyone should be a heretic. Question the status quo. Break your own rules. No religion owns heaven or God. That's the new spirit of the age, which is nobody can tell me what to do. And like eight Booth, the earth is ours. I'm just taking it back. It does sound cool. I'll tell you, it really does sound cool. But Peter says when you look at heresy and really peel back, or I like to look at it like a piece of wood that's been on the ground for a while. If you ever see a piece of just plywood sitting there, you ever pick it up if it's been on grass for a while? There's all kind of caterpillars, centipedes, slugs. That's what heresy is. Underneath it is not, it is not cool at all. In truth, it is really dangerous to be a heretic, according to Peter. So let's talk about it. In the middle of verse 1, you'll see he talks about this word, secretly bring in destructive, and then that's where we get the word heresy from. Heresy comes from the Greek idea to choose, to choose. In other words, heresy involves a teaching that reflects the teacher's own personal choices, his own personal preferences. He teaches it, not because it's true necessarily, but because he likes it. One commentator said this about the heretic. Heresy is a deliberate, deliberate self-chosen opinion. It's a mental act of rebellion. It is purposely not accepting what everyone else has accepted as truth. You want to be different. I like to say it's mental cliff jumping. It's the person who just wants to believe it because they can. All ideas are open, aren't they? So I can believe it if I want to. That's the heretic's opinion. And these days, this form of thinking is cool. It's really cool. Actually, wherever you read, specifically in theological circles, the boundaries are always being pushed, changed, and they're saying, let's turn it upside down and reimagine it. Instead of using the word cool, I think Peter would describe these people as arrogant. Not cool, he'd say they're arrogant. Arrogant in the sense that they don't listen to the voice of the wise people who have gone before them. If you think about it, for 2,000 years there have been some pretty brilliant people. And theology is actually an invitation, studying theology is an invitation to bring these people to like your table to learn from them. The heretic says, ah, I'm smarter than they ever were. It's arrogance. I, I have a much more simpler definition. I would define the cool heretic as a person who's nothing more than a trendy idiot. 
is my definition. And by trendy, we, 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 just, we live in a time when people just want to look cool. It's really odd. I was reading a book that said people don't necessarily get their heretical thinking or their wrong thinking because of reason or logic or argumentation. They think the way the group they want to be a part of thinks. That's really where heresy starts. I like those people. I like their look. And I'm going to think the way they think. Peter tells us how you can spot heresy. He's going to define it in three ways. I'm going to read verse 1 and then I'm going to elaborate, pull out three things that really identify heretical thinking. He says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. So three things. Number one, heresy is false. Its origin is false. It's false because it begins in the mind of man. Opinion. Heresy always begins there. False teachers are false because they start from a human jump, a jumping board. That's where they begin. And opinions that originate in the human realm will always be wrong. Listen to Jeremiah 17.9. The heart, meaning the, the, the source of human understanding, the heart is deceitful above all things. It lies. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, The hearts of the children of men are full of evil. And in Romans 3.11 describes the person outside of God or starting from a human perspective, no one knows, no one understands, and no one seeks God. So if you put all those three things together, starting from a human perspective, we can lie to ourselves. Usually our intention has some evil to it, and we really don't know God without Him revealing Himself to us. So when a man leaves the clear teachings of God and begins from the starting points of his own opinion, it's always false. Second thing, heresy is shady. Look at the middle of verse 2. One, it says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresy? So it's shady. It's, it's hiding something underneath. So behind the heretical teaching lurks an evil that is intent on destroying something. What does it want to destroy? The foundation of our faith. Look at the end of verse, two, verse 1. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Who's that? Jesus. And what does it mean who bought them? The cross. So heresy usually diminishes Christ and gets rid of the cross. Doesn't like the idea that we need somebody to die for our sins. It hides the gospel, especially the focus of the atonement. Here's the thing about heresy. It looks good. It sounds good. It dazzles. It entertains. Heretics usually, good heretics, man, they tell stories that tug at the heart. They give you very pragmatic self-helps. They can make you cry. But usually in the meantime, they leave out Jesus. Where's, where'd Jesus go? Well, and they'll say it like this, well, I want to appeal to the non-Christian. I want him to first hear me, and then I'll introduce Jesus. But the truth is, 
They really don't. Look at what um, 2 Corinthians says. Go to 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians chapter four. And this is Paul's approach to teaching. Begins in verse two, Second Corinthians four two, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. In other words, he's not shady, he's not deceitful, he's not hiding anything. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then here's the key. And even if our gospel is veiled, or if our gospel's hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, when you talk to people that are heretics, they usually come off as, I just want to be understood by the non-Christian. I, I, I don't want to be so, so open about the gospel. So I'm going to kind of hide it in and some interesting stories. But what happens is when you hide the gospel, the Christian kind of understands what you mean, but the non-Christian has no clue you're really talking about Jesus. Or the need for a man to die for your sins. And usually the heretic will say, I just want to, I just want the, you know, to be relevant. Which means, let's leave out Jesus and his death. But all Paul ever taught was Jesus and him crucified. So behind the glitter and gleam, behind, behind the, the self-promotion lies worms and snakes. A couple of years ago, I was laying out this brown tarp. I was pulling some leaves off of the yard, and I brought them into my woods to dump the leaves, but it got all wet. So I laid out my brown tarp on some soil, and it the brown tarp looked kind of like the soil, and it was hot out. The sun was beating on the brown tarp, but I didn't really think that this brown tarp was an incubator for snakes. They all slithered underneath it. I wasn't thinking about it. I went to go do some weeding in the garden, and I went to get the brown tarp, and I lifted it up, and they went, they went after me. Like Indiana Jones, I'm like, I hate snakes, you know, and ah, that's what heresy does. Heresy is so reasonable. So justified, so calm, but underneath is this snake that wants to bite and kill the message of Jesus. It's dangerous. And then the third thing, look at verse 2. Verse 2 tells us the third characteristic of heresy. Many will follow. Many will follow. It's popular. It's popular. And here's the reason why. Many will follow because, because it appeals to their sensuality. In other words, it will be popular because people like it because it will allow them to continue in their sexual freedom. It usually talks a lot about material success, having pleasure and finding comfort without the condemnation. Really what the cross is all about is condemnation. When you get rid of the cross, hey, we're all okay. We're all okay. We will have, we can have our best life now. Isn't that nice? It's nice. That's the whole point. Heresy is designed to cater to our flesh. So when a slick guy or a gal comes along preaching tolerance, sexual tolerance, hey, 
Why can't we be gender fluid? It's okay. God loves everybody, doesn't he? He does. We can teach health, success, progress, and then people will hear that and they will lap it up like a kitten does a saucer of milk. They can't resist it. Listen to 2 Timothy 4.3. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Tell me what I want to hear. In verse 3, look at verse 3, it says, man, they're, they're making bank on you, and in their greed they will exploit you. Exploit means they're making a lot of money off of your gullibility. So, how does God respond? I think what's interesting to the heretic and people who follow heresy, if you ask them about God, in their heart, they, I think they think God is like an old man that's sort of blind and doesn't see and is kind of, you can fool him, you know. He, he, his hearing aids off. He doesn't know what I do. But the truth of the matter is God isn't stupid. And God is not fooled by the falseness of the wolf in sheep's clothing. Did you know God knows every thought of your heart? Everyone. He knows, he sees everything. It says the eyes of the Lord look upon the earth. In a, if you want to read a scary psalm, read Psalm 11 one time. Psalm 11. I will just tell you, read it sometime if you want to read a scary psalm. So those who are heretics and those who follow the heretic must take heed to verse 3, the end of verse 3. Look at what it says. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, so they're making money off of you. And their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Long ago means, you'll see, God has all pronounced judgment on them long ago. And it's been, since really the fall of Adam, it's been coming down upon human beings ever since. It's, it's uh, stated strange, though. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is a lot of sleep. Why does he state it like that? Why does he phrase it is not idle and is not asleep? Because from our vantage point, from human vantage point, we don't see condemnation at work. I think when we hear the word condemnation, we think it's instant judgment. So, when I do something that's against God's will and I'm not judged, God must let, he must let me off the hook. But Peter's saying, ah, 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 don't trust that. It's not asleep. This to me is the tricky part of God's judgment. You can look at it like it's the way dry rot and wood works. If you look at a piece of wood that has dry rot, at first you don't notice it. The outside of the wood looks good, but inside is bacteria eating the wood. Then one day, all of a sudden, after it's been eating it a while, you're toe just taps that wood and it smashes it in because it's dry it has no integrity it's not strong and all that wood is good for is taking a crowbar ripping it off and putting it in a wood pile to burn because it's worthless and that's how God's judgment works on the soul of a person look at death let me give you an example death do you know death is so Adam ate from the fruit, and God said, if you eat, you will die, and Adam ate, but he didn't instantly die, but death has started working on him. And did you know that same 
That same judgment is now working on you right now. Death is at work. You're like, oh, no, it isn't. I don't see it. We are all dying right now. We try to fight it. We try to ignore it. We try to hide it. We put on the death hider itself. We call that cosmetics. Cosmetics are meant to hide death. Wrinkles are a sign of death. You were really never intended to have wrinkles. Did you know that? But death is certain, and it is working in your body right now, ever so slowly. It marches on, and like dry rot, it eats at your soul. Why do older people seem to go to the doctor more often than younger people? Because you're dying. <laughs> we are. We're dying. We think we're so strong. Man, I'm going to live forever. I got up this morning and my knees hurt. Like, what is wrong? It's death. It's killing me. It's just taking a little bit slower. And then one day, a heart will stop. My mind will be, you know, I'll forget. Might break my pelvis. That's just death's dry rot. It's dry rot. And that's what condemnation is all about. Condemnation from heresy works the same way. But there's also moral decay. When you believe heresy, it does something to you. All of a sudden, you start having willful sin. You start, and willful sin causes addictions. And often addictions or rebellion causes divisions in family, anger, hatred, envy, and ultimately a, die, a denial, as it says in verse 1, of the one who bought you. Heresy always ends in rejecting Christ. Ruin is at work when you let heresy in. That's why it's so dangerous. It's God's condemnation. Well, many people think they're exempt. I can escape. And Peter's going to give three evidences how certain ruin is. He's going to give us a history of ruin. And it's going to start in verse 4 and go to verse 9. He's going to give us three examples, and he's going to begin each example with the conditional clause, if. It's a conditional clause, meaning. It means if he did this in the past, why should we think he is done doing it in the present? If he did this in the past, why should we think he is done doing it in the present? One commentator says, Peter assumes and establishes, he's going to establish for us, that neither rank, you know, what position you're in. A lot of the false teachers were men of position. They'd be paid well. They were respected. Neither rank nor strength, how strong you are, nor numbers will shield you from God's vengeance if you're rebelling. So let me give you three evidences from history that ruin is certain. Evidence number one, verse four. It's, a, it's a evidence against rank. For if God did not spare angels... When they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. What is he talking about? He's saying there are some angels that sinned. And then these angels that sinned were cast into hell. The Greek word is Tartarus, or we often say Sheol or the bad side of Abraham's bosom, the holding tank underneath somewhere. So angels who sinned are in hell and they're in chains, waiting till judgment. So some of the angels who sinned 
have been put in chains waiting for the end when they're going to be judged and thrown into the lake of fire. So you're like, well, when did that happen? There's two, man, there's like 40, 50 pages you can read on this. But I think there's two plausible explanations. The first one is pre-Edemic or Eden, before Eden. It says that God created the angels. And there was one he created named Lucifer. And Lucifer, it says, and Ezekiel saw himself and he grew proud. And in Isaiah, it said he wanted to be better than God. He wanted to lift his throne above God. And so he was cast down. I, I see it like this. I think Scripture affirms there's three heavens. Heaven number one is the material world we see. Heaven number two is where there is a spiritual realm where angels and demons fight. The third heaven is where God's throne is and only perfection can live up there. And so I think Satan, when he sinned, was thrown out of heaven three into heaven two. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And Revelations has this idea that he pulled a third of the angels with him in rebellion. And so this seems to assume some of those angels who rebelled, God put in jail somewhere. And Revelation hints that they're going to be let go at the end of the world to curse the world. Kind of creepy stuff, isn't it? Do you believe that? Todd does. If Todd believes it, I believe it. I believe it. There is also um, another speculation. You can read up on this if you want. This is even creepier if you like creepy stuff. Genesis chapter 6 talks about the sons of God fell in love with the daughters of men. And some people think those sons of God were angels that actually had relations with human women and they had as offspring the Nephilim. And they said the Nephilim are these mighty gods and Goliath was one of the Nephilim. That's some speculation. I don't, I'm on the, pre, the pre-Eden camp. So what he's saying, if the angels, these incredible beings of rank, were condemned by God, who do you think you are to think you're going to escape? Then he gives another evidence, evidence number two. This is more severe. Read this in verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world... But preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the godly. So he's, here's, here's the story. You, you probably know the story. It is speculated that at the time of Noah in Genesis, there were as many people alive on earth at that time of the flood as there are today. And the reason they speculate that is because they lived a long time. So Methuselah lived 900 years. How many kids could you have in 900 years? And if your kid lived 500 years, you would have a lot of grandkids. So there's speculation that there was as many people alive at the time of the flood as there is now. Could you imagine a worldwide flood right now on the earth and only eight survive? That's really hard. Like, that's severe. And here's what he's saying. If God did that to billions, millions, let's say, billions, do you, re- you really think you're going to escape when you snub your nose at God? And then he gives one more. And this one, I think, is the most 
uh, I guess you could say culturally relevant story. We find it in verse 6. It's the most, I think it's one of the most heinous stories in the Bible. I remember the first time I read this story, I'm like, as a kid, I'm like, gross. That's gross. That's how I felt first time I read it. And I'm like, that, that wouldn't happen. Let me read verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Here's the story, a guy by the name of Abraham. Abraham's walking along the road. He's got a nephew, Lot. Lot lives in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is actually a really nice area of land. They were, there's a fertile land where there's a lot of farmland, but they were wicked. How wicked? Well, God told Abraham, I'm going to destroy them with sulfur from the sky. Actually, if you want to do something interesting, you can look up archaeologically the findings on this, where they found like sulfur material where they believe it was. Anyhow, here's what happened. Abraham said, God, my, can, you, can you spare Sodom and Gomorrah if you find 50 good men? All right, if I find 50, I'll spare. And then Abraham kept kind of bartering with them down to 10. If I, if I can find 10, I'll do it. Well, he couldn't find 10. That's how wicked the town was. So what he did is he went to go get Lot out before he sent the sulfur, and he sent two angels to warn Lot. Angels, often in the Old Testament, took on human form, looked like men. Because sometimes the angel could be, oh, there's three men there, it was actually an angel. So two men walk into Sodom and Gomorrah to go see Lot. As they're walking through the center of town, all the other men notice these two men. Why did they notice these two men? Because they wanted to have sex with them. Lot says, you guys, come in my house. I'll you, don't want to go, you don't want to be in the center of town tonight. Well, why not? You just don't, yeah, you don't want to be. You want to go to the parade in San Francisco today. You just don't, you don't want to. That's sort of what they're saying. So the angels are like, no, I want to go out there and warn them. And Lot's like, you know what, I'm going to go offer my two young daughters to those guys because I know you guys are angels and I don't want you to be affronted by these guys because it's bad. And so while the guys were in there, Lot had the door closed and the whole town came to beat the doors down because they wanted to have sex with these two angels. And I remember reading that going, that is gross. Life's not like that. Really? Well, the angels basically blinded the whole town, got Lot, his kids, out of there and his wife before the sulfur came down. As they ran out of town, the angels said, don't look back because they didn't want them wanting that life anymore. Get, be done with that. Life's wife looked back and she was turned into Jack, a pillar of salt. So you could say, if God did that, why, why wouldn't he judge America? Well, there's some uh, questions because 7 and 8 talk about Lot, his, his nephew. Because Lot lived with these people. And it says in verse 7, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. What's interesting, if you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know what our culture says? You know why God judged Sodom and Gomorrah? Because... They, were, they, they had a lack of hospitality to those two poor angels. No, no, it's, it was sexual debauchery in this 
proves it, verse 7. And he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, verse 8. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. People say, you know, Lot's a complicated man. Why did he live with those people? I would say this, they definitely did not like Lot. I would say Lot was not cool. He didn't join in with them. They wouldn't consider him cool. One writer says, Genesis leaves the impression that Lot was a rather weak individual, hardly impressive as an example of faith, but despite his shortcomings, he refused to condone or sympathize with the corruption around him. And he fled by faith. So in other words... The reason why he can be called a righteous man is because God said, I'm going to, I promise I'm going to judge them, flee. He believed God's promise and he fleed. Righteous people are those who believe the promises of God and even the promises of condemnation. Another writer wrote this based on, look at verse 8, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented, he was tormenting his righteous soul. So what, when he saw their wickedness, it it broke him like he couldn't stand it. And one writer says, Lot had not allowed his conscience to become so dulled that he was no longer pained by what he witnessed. Our great security against sin and heresy lies in, not, lies in being shocked by it. That's an amazing statement. There's a verse in Jeremiah that says, um, the way you can tell a society is being degraded is they no longer have shame. At least Lot had shame. He's tormented. And then verse 9 ends by saying, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. So in other words, when God says something's going to happen, it will. When he says he judge, he will judge heresy, he will. I started off this message by saying that the cool thing in Christian circles these days is to be a heretic. It's cool. Someone who questions the status quo, breaks the rules, and is imaginative on truth. You know, I can bend it any way I want. We also learned today that heresy is rooted in human opinion. Sounds appealing. It is attractive. It's popular, but it's shady because its goal underneath it all is to diminish and get rid of Jesus and his cross because it's the only thing that saves you. Because of that, God says he will and is right now judging heresy. So Peter's warning us to stop it. I'm going to introduce you in the end here to one more person. I have met this person personally, and I like him. I think he's a very sincere, a very sincere man. He really is. Here's his name. His name's Kent Dobson. He's the former pastor of Mars Hill. Mars Hill is the church that Rob Bell built. I showed you at the beginning that thing, the heretic, Rob Bell's church. Kent Dobson was Rob Bell's main disciple. So you can say Rob Bell's the heretic. This, he is the disciple of Rob Bell. After Rob left to go surf and explore new ideas in California, Kent took over his church. And I got to tell you, Kent is a very genuine, sincere man. But he wanted to continue the type of church that was established by Rob. And here's what he says. And not the quote yet, Andrew. Not, you know, you're good. Very excellent. Here's what he says. 
Mars Hill was meant to have the same gospel, but to deliver the message in a more hip way. Specifically, I wanted a cool church, and there's, you know, air quotes. I wanted a cool church with, air quotes, cooler shoes than a traditional church down the road. Those are his very words. He wanted a cool church. cool, And he dresses cool, like he would wear that jacket and those jeans. I mean, he is cool. I, he just is. But then, just like his teacher, he started questioning the status quo. That was how he preached, and he liked to break the rules. He said, I not only began to question the packaging of traditional church, but also the message, the gospel. Two years ago, Kent no longer felt he could be a pastor. And all this stuff, by the way, is for public record. I'm not trying to slant. I'm just telling you he is Rob's disciple. Two years ago, he no longer felt he could be a pastor, so in front of his church he resigned, and he gives the reason why. Listen to the reason why he had to quit pastoring. I've always been, and I'm still drawn to the very edges of religion. He likes to jump off the, off the roof of faith in God. I've said a few times that I don't even know if we know what we mean by God anymore. The reason he left is because he even said in his own words, I'm not even sure if I know who Jesus is. Heresy is real. Heresy is really destructive. You may be tempted to want to jump to new and exciting, to break the rules, to abolish absolutes, to, you know, be the new bandwagon is to say everybody can have their own truth and believe in God their own way because all that matters is the brotherhood of men. You can, you can do that, but remember, to God, Heresy is not cool. 